This is a Little Empire podcast. Visit us at littleempirepodcast.com and on Twitter at littleempirepod. I'll admit it. Whoa. I did try and fuck her. She was married. <laughs> huge news, Sarah. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. Good lord, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode four of Politics, the world's only podcast about the U.S. presidential election, coming to you from one of the parts of Florida unblighted by Hurricane Matthew. I am Jeb Lund, a national affairs correspondent for Rolling Stone, and joining me from the secret host eagle nursery deep within volcanic Raoul Island is our New Zealand correspondent and comedian Tim Bat. I'm here and I'm convinced that there is no God, Jeb. It's an illusion. It's gone. What has transpired could not have transpired under the watch of a benevolent supreme being. I you so you were sober for this one is what you're saying. Yeah, man, and it was um, not a good way to watch a presidential debate. I've got to say, uh, wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the conversation about whether a candidate can relate to somebody having a beer with them in a bar somewhere is is sort of the media and also presidential campaigns wanting to suggest the optimum frame of mind to be in to deal with really any part of the political process. Yeah, I think that has been something that's gotten fuzzy along the way. But um, yeah, I think a news corporation somewhere confused the fact that you have to be drunk to engage with American politics with uh, you should be drunk with American politicians. But at any rate, um, sobriety was not the best friend of watching the second US presidential debate. Uh, Just for a bit of context, we're recording this just after it finished, and I'm in kind of a unique situation as well, because I watched the thing, and then just got up to go for a walk and get a cup of coffee and come back, and now here we are. So I haven't been exposed to any of the post-mortem stuff, so anything we say on the podcast, I uh, might be quite misaligned with the the rest of the world and media. So it's going to be hot take, hot take from old Timbo. (laughs) Excellent. You know, listen, let's not queer the purity of the turf by dragging in uh, you know, elements from from other agencies. I did catch, I want to say, maybe 15 minutes of uh, the, you know, the sort of the spin room thing. Actually, and this is this is what I, I, I took away and, and to sort of tell the audience, I think, how pristine my takes will be as well. The one thing that I noticed, there was a dude. Uh, so the, the immediate MSNBC spin room was Chris Matthews of Hardball. Um with uh, tall canvas director's chairs like you see in a Hollywood set and interviewing yet another woman journalist who was dressed up professionally and so she's wearing a skirt and and the camera is again set at the Roger Ailes height of just about at the woman's waistline so you can just see the mortification that you know the these you know, trained, incredibly intelligent, professional national correspondents who travel all around the country reporting on these campaigns. You just watch them squirming because they have to keep their their knees locked together and turn toward Matthews because they know yeah. the camera is aimed right at them. And yeah. I don't know who's doing it. I don't think Chris Matthews is a pervert. I mean, there's a reason why Roger Ailes created a glass desk on, on yeah. Fox News. And in fact, he said that in case anyone was doubting, he really intended it to be used that way. But that was so I was watching that and just feeling this incredible pity and and kind of contact discomfort. And there is this dude in the corner, top right of the screen, just mugging the entire time. <laughs> so oh, Chris man. Matthews is trying to ask this serious conversation and this woman journal it, no, it was um I think it was Kellyanne Conway, but uh it, it shows just how like 
uh, out of it I was. I was thinking of a campaign operative because I, <laughs> I've th- all through the primaries I had to watch um, like Sabrina Siddiqui of the Guardian. I think you know I had to sit uncomfortably. Joan Walsh of the Nation and uh, just people that I you know, are work colleagues and I would sort of have contact discomfort watching my friends or, or compatriots. But anyway, so they're doing this and this dude is just leaning down kind of in the frame. And he's got a he's got a face kind of like one of the lesser Bill Murray siblings, not Brian Doyle Murray, but the other one. Um, the okay. one, uh, the guy who played, uh, yes. the guy who played, I think, Freddie Rumson on Mad Men, and he's just got this grin, like, "Hey, how can I get you in a Chevrolet this evening?" <laughs> like, <laughs> good God, like, what is it going to take to get you to walk off this lot as the new owner of a fabulous Chevy Silverado? I mean, he's just grinning the entire time. How is this your main takeaway from the debate? <laughs> How is this the thing you're leading with, Jeb? Although I will say that it could be a useful uh, unit of measure to instigate a Roger Ailes height. Like you guys are on the imperial system, so I feel like you can just fang in any old measurement you want. So it could be inches, feet, and Roger Ailes desk height from now on if you want to measure stuff. But let's talk about the debate, Jeb. Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, I hate to. I, I appreciate that you're trying to drag it, drag it back to relevancy, and I'll, I'll do my best to. Let's get to... your filthy mind out of the spin room, but um. <laughs> You brought up Kellyanne Conway uh, before we get into the the nuts and bolts of the debate. An interesting thing has been happening uh, since the Billy Bush tapes. Is that the best way to describe them? I don't want to say the P word excessively on this podcast. I feel like if I call them the pussy tapes or something, that's going to get real creepy. I might have even said it too much even now. But the Billy Bush tapes came out. His last name is euphemism enough, right? <laughs> Do you know he's apparently part of the Bush family as well? I'm not sure how closely, but he's he's part of the dynasty. Um, so once they came out, the main uh, surrogates, which were skipped for but for Trump brother, uh, that were supposed to go on the Sunday show, started pulling, and uh, Rudy Giuliani had to work overtime to get around to everyone. Um, but Kellyanne Conway was scheduled to be on, I think, both Meet the Press and Face the Nation um, and pulled out. And so it was. it's interesting that she, I guess she kind of had to be in the spin room. Did she? Did you see any of her comments after the debate? No, like I, I was just, uh, you know, not because I, I felt like we were going to try and plan to not be influenced by the spin room. I, I set a DVR and uh, I caught, and I just, that guy was just so funny and I was yeah. enjoying that. And then, uh, you know, wrote down some notes for something I'm going to write as soon as we're done yeah. with this and then came in here waiting, uh, you know, for your call. So sure. So Rudy Giuliani on these shows leading up to the debate, and this is him talking, uh, kind of, it must be like 12 hours before the debate was due to start. Um, with, uh, Chuck Todd and, uh, John Dickerson, he did a way, way infinitely better job of describing the predicament and expressing contrition and apology and regret for what Donald Trump said than Donald Trump did on the debate stage. And let's just get into this right now. The way that he attempted to tackle this, um, of continuing to put it up to locker room talk, even when Anderson Cooper really pushed him on this and articulated, he said, look, what you described on those tapes was sexual assault. Do you accept that? And for Trump to say no to that was such a shocking approach. And I guess it just proved to me that there's kind of no, there's no limits. 
there's no bottom to the depravity. I would have thought that at some point, getting caught out for something like this and have it air in such a public way and have it happen at such a critical moment in the campaign would force him to experience some sort of uh, what's humility or basic mm-hmm. human decency and understanding the repercussions of what he's put out there and what he's said. And for that to not be expressed on the debate stage, if for no other reason than a attempt to diffuse it so it couldn't be used as ammunition throughout the night, was um, was crazy. Like, I thought I kind of had a bit of a handle on what this guy was capable of, but it felt like even my um, low expectations of what his limits were were exceeded or not met, depending on, sort of, I guess, <laughs> which way around you're measuring it. Yeah, and I, I think I, I'm, I'm with you. I, you know, I, I've been writing about this for forever um, since last June, and you kind of you keep expecting there to be a bottom, uh, and there isn't. And I think really, I, I, there, there's two explanations for that. One, I just think Trump is constitutionally incapable of recognizing that he needs to feel shame, or at least do a, a credible approximation of publicly feeling shame. But I also think that in a broader context, uh, the moment that you act like you're ashamed, you're acknowledging that there's something to be ashamed about. And if you just keep moving forward, if you don't ever apologize, then people become overwhelmed by the sheer enormity of the the ugly things that you've done, and they don't know what to pick. And, and I think I might have said this on the podcast before, but there was a moment at the RNC in Cleveland, where I was talking to a friend of mine, and one of us joked, and I can't remember who said it, but They said, hey, do you remember that Donald Trump accused Ted Cruz's father of being a JFK assassination co-conspirator? And we'd all essentially forgotten that, which in any other presidential campaign would be the most memorable thing that happened to it. This would be an item that goes into history books, bar none. And I'm not even sure it's in the top 10 of this one. (laughs) And so if you just sort of keep going and never apologize, all the people who oppose you don't know where to start. And all the people who agree with you are going to filter it out and say, well, there's no need there. And I think that was kind of the debate strategy here was the people on our team get it. And that's fine if you're ahead. It's not so great if you're losing. And so I think he kind of shored up his core constituency, but his core constituency is not going to be enough to put him in the White House. And to be fair to Trump, which seems like an odd sentence, um, <laughs> it is that is the very thing that he has used through this campaign to manage to uh, become the candidate in a field of 19... I think there was 23 at one point um, vying for uh, the candidacy to represent the Republican Party, and he managed to get through all of those people by just continually throwing new things out there new shiny objects for the press to grab onto and it has served him this entire time so i guess we shouldn't be as shocked maybe as we are to discover that even with a bombshell like this coming out his strategy will always be just keep lobbing bombs keep throwing uh, new stuff out there about your opponents um and he the first half of this debate i felt from trump's side was I, I want to find another word for deplorable, but that's probably the closest way I can describe <laughs> it. It was just, it was kind of horrific and disgusting to watch. And he did pick it up in the second half and uh, used some effective lines. But the the thing that I just couldn't shake watching the entire performance was that 
he couldn't have looked like he wanted to be there less. And based on all of the facts and the context that we know, I imagine Hillary Clinton really didn't want to be there. There was no handshake at the start, which a lot of people commented on on Twitter, and I think rightly so. Um, Hillary Clinton takes joy being a politician and seeing her enemies uh, being vanquished on a stage, which I'm sure was upcoming. But for her to be on stage with this guy at this point, now with these new comments that have come out, must have been kind of a hard thing to do. She's had a career of hard things to do, I guess. But she did a good job of painting a smile on her face, injecting some energy in her voice, having the appropriate body language. Trump was so, to use his words, low energy at the start of this. It felt like he wanted to be anywhere but there. Downward inflection the whole time. And did this weird thing where he kept walking around Hillary Clinton at the start, just kind of stalking her that the cameras picked up from the back, which came yeah, across like, as super predatory. It was like Pepe Le Pew just sort of bouncing around. It was it more would, sinister than that, I would say. He wasn't like a hilarious uh, French skunk. He was more, it was more like Wile E. Coyote, right? Like licking his lips, looking at his prey, trying to find a way to, um, to trap her. And he's got those by default quite uh narrow squinty little eyes that he's looking through which always make him look a little bit evil like he's up to no good and it, the whole thing just added up to really bad optics which i mm-hmm. guess goes to show maybe he didn't prepare again as much as he should have um for this debate in terms of the optics and what he needed to do and how he just kind of needed to do basic things like arrange his face and just hold himself um, it was weird. But in the second half, yeah, I thought he did have some effective lines, which we can get into. But yeah, did, did, what was your kind of feel of the two halves of the debate? Did you see it my way where there was quite a change? Well, I, I, my first reaction to what you're saying, and it, which isn't to gainsay it by any means, but I think... Gainsay away, friend. The, you know, the, the media and, and people on the left are really good at picking up on, well, Trump is looming in the background. He seems ominous. He seems predatory. And I think to a neutral observer, if you didn't understand what was going on in the in politics and you didn't know who these people were, but you just saw this guy standing behind a woman, yeah, I think you might naturally say that's somewhat maybe intimidating or rude. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think in if you're a Trump voter, and mm-hmm. this, is, this is the disconnect that I see so much from my colleagues and maybe it's just by dint of living in Florida and not living in D.C. and New York, where I actually run into Trump supporters all the time. And some of them are my neighbors and we chat. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, if you like somebody, you will filter this behavior into into whatever rationalization works for you. Uh, Trump seemed, you know, lackadaisical or, or he had a certain lassitude to him. Well, OK, he's a billionaire. He's a guy who's up at four in the morning or five in the morning, doing deals. This is insipid to him. He already had one of these. He already won it. Why does he have to win a second debate? So of course he would be bored, wouldn't you? It's the career politicians who are fired up for it. Done. You know, rationalization is such a powerful tool. Um, He's standing behind Clinton. Well, listen, if she can't, you know, if she can't deliver a speech to an audience without having referees in the media and on her side saying that man can't stand too close to her. Well, what is she going to do on the international stage? How tall is Vladimir Putin? How tall is Bashar al-Assad? Uh, you know, is that the right Assad? God, I'm tired. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, that's, a, fair, that's so, a really fair call, man. No, I totally hear you. Like, And that is the purpose of this entire process is to 
kind of throw the harshest thing within the normalcy or whatever bounds used to be considered the normal bounds of a presidential campaign it's a really hard really long running thing and the purpose of that is to test the candidate because the job they're running for is an incredibly hard thing full of incredibly hard challenges and incredibly challenging people so that's true you can't bubble wrap these candidates in the debates and stuff you're right well do you want to take a quick break and then come back with actual specifics on actual Actual events as opposed to general impressions. Oh, God, why would you? But we will take a break, and maybe there's just more general (laughs) feelings about the debate coming up or maybe more specificity. Um, We'll also be talking a little bit about the vice presidential debate, which we missed doing a podcast on, uh, and some other stuff. Bear with us. Okay. What we all saw and heard on Friday was Donald talking about women, what he thinks about women, what he does to women and he has said that the video doesn't represent who he is but I think it's clear to anyone who heard it that it represents exactly who he is and welcome back to politics a postmodern look at what a potential post-apocalyptic vision of America could be representing the rest of the world that will be influenced uh, by the leader of the free world decision I'm Tim Batt in representing America, coming to us live from a storm speared Florida, is G. Blunt. Yeehaw. <laughs> this is a good response. Um, let us talk more about specifics of this debate that we've just seen, the second presidential debate between Trump and Clinton. Uh, first thing I want to bring up, Jeb, is that, <laughs> much like that legend in the audience, who I'm so glad they made enough time to get his question, Carl, who asked, can you please tell us something that you respect about your opponent to both of them on stage? Let us try and find some positive things that Trump did tonight. Um, I thought that the Donald did well to, uh, in the second half of this debate, seem to find his feet more and bring it back to the emails in Syria and try and lay that at Clinton's feet as much as possible. And I think that he knows what a um, details-orientated person Clinton is, which is an easy way to set a trap for her in a debate, because if you say enough lies with specifics in it, she will always be tempted to try and correct the record before she moves on, which, of course, just burns up a lot of time. And in this, mm-hmm. both debates that we've seen so far, I can you can see, you can feel how coached she has been to not take the bait so many times when Trump has brought things like this up. And tonight she um, let her guard down a little bit with that. She did pretty well throughout the whole debate. To um, She keeps referencing her own website as being this live fact-checking device that's out there for people to go to so she doesn't have to spend too much time on it. But she did get drawn back into going into the specifics of the email saga, clearing up certain numbers, certain timelines, specifics about it. And it seemed like it really drilled on for a long time and it did just run down the clock. Did you get that sense as well? Yes and no. I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying in part. I think the Syria thing is a mixed bag because what Trump said, he immediately started talking about Mosul and he just dropped Syria and he didn't really have anything. I mean, that's just an utter dog's breakfast of language and foreign policy, at least in terms of his response. Clinton's isn't that much better. Uh, and there are a couple reasons why. Um uh, as a, you know, a friend of mine quipped, you know, she's talking about safe zones, but how does she define it? How does she enforce it? There's no definition there. There's really nothing that you can latch on to. Uh, 
also we're going to partner with force with our allies on the ground well we, who are sorry, our allies when you when you're talking about safe zones is that like aleppo yeah well it's what they're talking about uh, you know, we, we're going to take people who support us and we're going to make sure that we're going to put a no-fly zone over them so Assad can't attack them. And also we're going to make sure that ISIS isn't coming in. Well, this, I mean, how are you going to do any of that? Yeah, right, right. Uh, Syria, Syria to me almost seems like a complete waste of time, not from a humanitarian standpoint, and obviously not to Syrians, but in terms of being a debate topic because almost nobody at home has any idea what's going on in Syria. Yeah. And so they will accept any answer that seems confident. Yeah. And that really works for the punditocracy too, because if you actually go and, and, and look at what people are saying about what the candidates say, they're not much better informed. There's probably in Washington about 50 people who really understand Syria. And they're probably all too poor or unattractive to be on television. Yeah. Um, or they're saying the wrong sorts of things that the American foreign policy community doesn't enjoy. And so Clinton gave an effective answer that's detailed, but if you don't subscribe to it, you can just sort of laugh it off as easily as you can support it. Um, As for like getting baited into things, in my experience, again, talking to people who are Trump supporters and living outside the kind of Beltway bubble, the email thing comes up all the time. So I'm not, I don't necessarily agree with her being baited into it because that's the one thing she needs to keep explaining until everyone hears it. And as much as, you know, if you're, as much as we say, if you're explaining you're losing, she's already losing on this issue to people. So if she can make it make sense that this was a conventional thing to do, that there was no ultimate loss of life from this policy, that the FBI, that these other panels that have looked into it, they can't find any concrete proof. If she can maybe turn somebody, I think, I think that's really kind of what she's going for. She knows that this is the easiest thing to hit her on, the yeah. emails in she, Benghazi. She did such a good job in the first debate of um, being super focused on giving this short, contrite answer, which was, I apologize for what I did. It was the wrong thing to do. And there wasn't really a but at the end of it, and it didn't go into specifics. It just diffused the whole kind of umbrella situation. Um, which was the point that Trump then came back and said it was more than a mistake. It wasn't just a mistake. It was something you did on purpose, which was one of his better sort of counterpoints of that first debate. Um, but I feel like if she had have gone in with a bit more of that broad, contrite attitude to be able to just defuse the issue early on, it wouldn't have had to burn up the clock, which could have been spent bringing... I mean, the, the tapes is relevant and current as they are didn't get a ton of time on the debate and i thought that if there were some other pivot points that she could have um taken it back into that it would have been pretty effective just to make him have to answer to it because anytime he was talking about that he really looked like a monster on the stage Mm -hmm. so i don't know yeah i guess my critique would be that she spent too much time getting into the details I, i do hear what you're saying but i think it's a more effective during those events which are only 90 minutes and there's so much time to hit him with so much good ammunition and vice versa that for those things when you know it's you're just going to be dragged to the mud on it it's just better to go yep i totally fucked up and i've acknowledged that and i promise to do better in the future which is kind of what trump should have done as well (laughs) like that's i mean that's what you do when you apologize for something when you make a mistake well, funnily enough, I think there there might be the same phenomenon at work impelling both attitudes, right? So Trump doesn't apologize 
because you know, he he's going to show weakness and and admit that there's some validity to the attacks of misogyny. And if he can just stonewall and say, no, that's boys being boys, uh, that's locker room talk. And, and I mean, you know, this is something I've heard stuff like that at bars. I've heard stuff like that in locker rooms. I think I naturally assume most of the time that's someone fronting, you know, the, the idea that they would actually go out and digitally commit some kind of assault seems pretty far-fetched. It's guys, I think, trying to seem way more alpha around other guys and, and really you don't have to impress me. I think that there's, a, a, I think Trump supporters will rationalize this in, in with the excuse that he's given them. And I think if Clinton pushes him too much on this and she goes on the attack, she plays right into those perceptions of women's equality and women's bodies being their own possessions, being a shrill anti-man attitude. Right. And you saw, I, I think the whole of her her demeanor at the debate was very much let me let Donald Trump hang himself and yeah. I won't come in there and finish him, which I think on one hand, yeah, that's a, you can say that's a mistake that you didn't put him away. On the other hand, there is still such a prevalent attitude in the United States, whether you want to just call it boorishness or misogyny or rape culture, or just men lacking the empathy to look beyond their own bodies and trying to figure out what someone else's, might be like in a crowd or in, in public spaces and how they might feel. But the more she pushes on this, the more I think some people are going to stop listening because it describes a reality that however obdurate and however unpleasant it might be for women is one they would prefer to think does not exist. Yeah, true. And and I would think as well in the case of a lot of Trump supporters kind of referring to a, it's almost like a word they don't understand in some ways maybe that's um falling into the half of you are in a basket of de- irredeemable deplorables thing but i just feel like there's a whole other th- there's a set of trump supporters that are living a completely different life one that is unrecognizable to me um so yeah it, it, one that hasn't been exposed to a large conversation on first second and third wave feminism and just kind of rights in this realm so i understand what you're saying that it could come across as this kind of shrill call that they just tune out to and the other bit of it as well i suspect is the bill factor which uh donald trump threatened a lot to bring up at the debate and uh, a lot of journalists were trying to figure out through rudy giuliani before the debate happened if that was going to come up in the debate um and it Mm -hmm. it sort of did and it sort of didn't it didn't come up as much as i as I was anticipating, I thought that he was. But then there was that bizarre um, press conference that Trump held uh, with four women before the debate took off, which I only saw a few moments from. Did you catch that? Yeah, that was grim. I uh, that was a really when you were talking about th- this election having. When we were both talking about this election having things that you didn't expect and you didn't think it was going to go any lower, that was one of them for me. Um, we, and, and honestly, that cuts both ways for me. I think you know, the exact same Bill Clinton who existed in 1992 would be utterly unelectable in 2006 because of the advances we've made as a culture in terms of believing women and not automatically discounting an accusation leveled at somebody, a man who is famous mm-hmm. and powerful. But by the same token, you know, as much as my heart goes out to these women, 
Uh, and as much as I wish I could go back to 1992 and go, now just wait, wait a minute. Yeah. Um, the fact that Trump hoodwinked the media into dragging them into a room with these women who are confessing to what to them and they very sincerely believe was the most profoundly ugly experience of their lives. Um, and, and Trump just sort of nodding and that weird, you know, is, is sort of pursed lip demeanor and then looking to the side nodding. And I just thought, you know, Christ, like how, you know, I, don't, I like what kind of, what kind of carrion bird are you for human suffering? Grim. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to come back from that, to be honest, Jeb. Um, yeah, I don't. Let me let me move it on to another point. Um, Trump's vow to pursue getting a special prosecutor to investigate the email saga with Hillary Clinton. Um, once again, from a pure communications point of view, from a political spectacle uh, spectacle point of view, I thought that was a pretty smart and powerful. Uh, offer for him to or or punch for him to level out there Um, considering everything that was swirling around in the last 72 hours about him for him to pull up anything with any kind of gusto and throw it out I think was a good thing to do try and distract everyone from what was happening around the debate and uh, yeah like I said before he did take a lot of opportunities to bring it back to Syria and the emails which ate up a lot of time and then seemed to punctuate the emails thing with this claim which it's always hard to know with Trump if this legitimately came to him on the fly or if this was um, a point that he had up his sleeve which he just wanted to sell as being of the moment but it sort of had had that same hesitation uh, that he did in the last debate when he didn't say anything but this time he said I you know I don't want to say I don't I didn't want to say this but I will I'm going to get a special prosecutor and take you down and you're going to go to jail. Um, is, what, is, what is the process of that? Is that a real thing or is that a thing that Trump has made up? Because as an outsider looking in, you don't really know which bits of the system are real when Trump describes them and which bits he's kind of imagined. <laughs> uh, no, I, so that was a really good... You, you're right to pick up on that. It was a really good part of the night. Um, I think a lot of this debate performance had the hand of Roger Ailes and uh, O'Bannon, the former Breitbart editor who became a, a Trump campaign advisor. Because if you looked at what he talked about all night and the things he kept referring to, if you've been reading all really right-wing uh, news websites, whatever you want to call them, really since uh, the Clinton era, or at least the Obama era, this is all straight out of that right-wing fever swamp almost everything he talked about tonight. Uh, And the special prosecutor reference was very good because for most people who are politically active and of a certain age, the only special prosecutor that they can remember is Kenneth Starr, who was the second special prosecutor assigned to Whitewater. So he can call on a special prosecutor. Congress can, can impanel a special prosecutor. The one thing that's changed is the special prosecutor law that allowed Ken Starr to just subpoena pretty much anybody and go wherever he wanted. Because remember, Whitewater started out as, you know, uh, Whitewater was this thing that metastasized and eventually claimed the, the governor of Arkansas and, and you're, you're bogged down in the Rose Law Firm. And it started with the White House travel office, basically. Uh, that law that let him kind of go so far afield is gone. 
Um, so he can still call a special prosecutor, but his powers are much limited. And the other thing that people kind of forget uh, about the special prosecutor thing is Ken Starr wasn't the original one. The guy who was the original special prosecutor called on uh, to investigate Whitewater was essentially fired because he said, there's nothing there. And the Republican controlled Congress said, well, we'll get somebody who will find something. Who called, so they don't have that latitude. Who called upon the special prosecutor in that case? Because obviously it wasn't the president of the day because that was Bill Clinton, right? Yeah, I mean, he wouldn't... Uh, as far as, as as I understand the special prosecutor, that that's a congressional perquisite. Right, so right. Trump is, is relying on the assumption that he's going to control the House yeah. and the, the GOP is going to control the House and he's going to win. And given how he's doing, it may be that the GOP controls nothing. So we'll see. Okay, let's take another quick break and come back. Um, We'll talk briefly about the vice presidential debate, some other stuff that's happening at the moment, and the forthcoming third and final debate before Election Day on the 8th. Oh, dear God, there's only a month to go. Thank the sweet baby Jesus. (laughs) What would you do about Syria and the humanitarian crisis in Aleppo? And I want to remind you what your running mate said. He said provocations by Russia need to be met with American strength and that if Russia continues to be involved in airstrikes along with the Syrian government forces of Assad, the United States of America should be prepared to use military force to strike the military targets of the Assad regime. Okay. He and I haven't spoken and I disagree. I disagree. You disagree with your running mate. I think we have to knock out ISIS. Welcome back to Politics, the only podcast that's following the U.S. presidential election led by some idiot in New Zealand and some other idiot in Florida. Jeb, good to be back with you. Uh, hello. Sorry for calling you an idiot to bring you back into the third third. Um, I appreciate it. I think we should undersell our qualifications as much as possible. So yeah. then if we succeed at, at basic competency, we've soared above what we told the audience to expect. I like that. Speaking of um, promising very low and exceeding expectations, the vice presidential debate happened. Uh, This was about five days ago between Tim Kaine and Mike Pence, and uh, I watched it. I watched it with half an eye. Um, In spite of the fact that, and I think I fell into this trap as well in a previous episode of this podcast, I thought it was uh, very lazy of the media to just label this as being an incredibly boring debate in the lead up to it. Um, because that the inference there is that it's inconsequential and unimportant, which is not true, because the two presidential candidates this year are the oldest in history, and uh, as we were constantly reminded uh, eight years ago when Sarah Palin was up for VP, they are one heartbeat away from the presidency. So I did watch, I think, all of it. Um, It's a little bit hazy. Jeb, I'm aware that you listened to it in a car, which is an interesting way to take it in. So you just had the audio, not the visuals. Um, mm-hmm. What was what was your take on it? Well, j- just to piggyback on something you said, mm. uh, Trump allegedly, or his campaign allegedly, reached out to John Kasich and yeah. said, "Would you like to be the most powerful vice president in history?" And you would. They they said you would be in charge of of handling domestic and foreign policy, and Kasich or his representatives sagely responded well what the hell is donald trump going to do then because after you do domestic and foreign policy there's no other policy to which and, his uh, son and, who was making the office said he's going to be focused on making america great again if memory serves exactly yes so that alone is reason to take the vice presidential debate more seriously because clearly mike pence is one of the few people with 
not necessarily two brain cells to rub together, but two work ethics to rub together. I don't know who's <laughs> going to actually sweat some of these details. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, that was kind of important. Now, has um, it ever been established if Mike Pence had a similar offer? Because I was trying to look for that and I couldn't find anything one way or the other to credit or discredit that. That offer of being made the most powerful vice president in, uh, in history. Not to my knowledge. Uh, either they learned their lesson or... Kasich was trying to blow up Trump a little bit because he's obviously he obviously has had a lot more resentment than the other the other failed GOP candidates. Uh, but that's also been consonant with his brand. He started out refusing to play Trump's game. Yeah. And so I think any opportunity to show that Trump is a dilettante and uh, morally and intellectually unserious, I think Kasich and, and his team are going to leap at that. Yeah. Um, but back to this vice presidential debate, you listened to it in the car. Um, the moderator, Elaine, how do you, we pronounce her surname? Uh, I don't remember. I'm sorry. She had a hell of a time because both men were, uh, talking over her constantly through, through the entire course of the debate. Um, I'm fully with the general consensus that Mike Pence did a lot better in this debate than Tim Kaine did stylistically. Tim Kaine seemed unable to, uh, just sit there and accept that Mike Pence had his turn to talk. Uh, And it got super annoying, super quick, especially because, you know, Tim Kaine's constantly been accused of being the nation's uncle dad. And that's the stereotype that he's sort of fallen into. And he just played into it so much by being this constant, annoying, yapping voice that was coming in. And Mike Pence did a great job, I thought, of rising above that most of the time and just sort of ignoring him which has led to a lot of people um, suggesting when you combine that fact of his effective communication skills, this is Mike Pence we're talking about, um, combined with the fact that he didn't go as far as a lot of people expected he would to defend Trump and Trump's positions, uh, has lit the fire of a theory out there that Mike Pence really was using the stage um, to bolster his chances in the next cycle to try and run for president. Yeah, and that's the the general... I mean, the the question you ask someone like Mike Pence, if you could sit him down, uh, is, and I think really anybody who's not in the Trump camp, the first question you would ask is, you see the Titanic going down, and contrary to the Titanic legend, the deck is on fire. Why did you board the ship and ask to be vice captain? You know, why did you ask to be the first officer of this? Uh, because there doesn't seem to be any... I, any real margin to it, it's going to be, you know, even if Trump wins, it's going to be disastrous. Why do you want to be a steward of this? And I think his calculation was Trump is going to lose, but I want to be of all the Republicans who turn their back. I want to be the only one who isn't disgraced the way Giuliani and Christie and Gingrich are the only non-disgraced one who got on this and said, I listened to the voters so that he's in a prime position in 2020 to say Ted Cruz didn't get on board. Marco Rubio didn't get on board. Scott Walker didn't get on board. None of these people were listening to you. You made a statement and I, as your public servant, took it seriously. Yeah. So I did my level best to contribute what knowledge and expertise I had to Donald Trump's campaign to help make America great again. Boom, done. And I think Kane's gig was to be like the yapping, annoying little schnauzer who eventually gets through your demeanor because Pence has that. You know, he used to be in radio, so he's got the buttery radio voice. Yeah, and uh, which I can't do. You know? <laughs> um, 
You've got a lovely voice, too. But it's, but it's not buttery. Um, no, but so he's going to be composed and he's just going to, he has the serenity that so many GOP candidates have of whenever you're troubled, just make shit up. Because <laughs> by the time it gets fact checked and by the time somebody sees it, it's going to be two days later. It's not above the fold on A1. It's buried on B9 in the paper, whatever. Um, so by being annoying, I thought Tim Kaine's gig was to make Pence get impatient and start answering back. Because all yeah. of Kane is hitting with is like, repudiate this fact, repudiate this fact, repudiate this fact. And if he, if he became discomposed, he might make a gaffe in general. He might look bad in general. But more importantly, by forcing him to respond to these antagonistic questions, he put some distance between him and Trump. And then you would have high drama there. And if nothing else, right, maybe Pence looks better than Kane, but Pence and Trump look fundamentally dysfunctional. So by Tim Kane constantly yapping at Pence, you feel like that was that was supposed to get rid of this polished veneer that Pence had, which was the connection to Donald Trump in the campaign. And once that veil to mix my metaphors was lifted, you would see the more political distance that exists between the two. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah. Well, one, most of Kane's questions were, do you stand by or support this statement? Or yeah. how can you stand by and support this statement? So you're forcing Pence to either disavow his, his candidate, mm. his boss, or disavow his boss piecemeal, kind of like line sure. item veto sure, certain sure. parts of what his boss is saying. And then you did see that happen where Pence was far more detailed about Syria than Trump is. Yeah. And he was advocating in far stronger intervention than Trump has ever advocated. And so the question immediately began, became, is Trump going to kick his VP to the curb on this topic? Or is this something they share? And the fact that there is no, there is no unanimity. Yeah. Of, of policy ideas between two people. And there was even crazy. a moment in the debate today, I think when Anderson Cooper threw a quote from uh, that debate from Pence Adam and um, Trump came out and said, I haven't had a conversation with him about it, <laughs> which I think was related to the, the Syria and Russia thing. Which seemed really crazy. And I would love to. I, I hopefully I've found that quote and put it in the podcast. So you guys can listen to that. But that was a super interesting moment as well. That whole um, phenomenon you're describing, just quickly, of being able to, uh, you know, when you come from the media world, and because Pence has that uh, experience in talkback radio, being able to just kind of repeat the same thing calmly. I always really heavily associate that with fundamentalist religious people as well because they feel like they've got this overarching moral fortitude that just insulates them from any viewpoint that they hold to be anything but correct. And it was interesting because I know going into this, both Tim Kaine and Mike Pence are super um, devout people, but Pence has, seems to have that kind of fundamentalist Christian, uh, almost kind of Baptist thing going on. Um, which I think is where he gets a lot of his political views, which is a difference that he has with Tim Kaine. And man, it serves you so well on a debate stage to just really believe in your bones that you're right and not be rattled by other people. It's like when atheists keep yapping at someone who's religious and being like, well, if God's real, what about this thing? What about this thing? What about this bit of science? And when you truly believe, when you've got the faith, you can just dismiss it out of hand. And that's the beauty of it. And it felt like there was a little bit of that going on as well, where Tim Kaine sort of 
to extend this metaphor properly past its Jews, became uh, the annoying um, atheist that just kept questioning Mike Pence, and Mike Pence was quite happy to just stay in his his beliefs. And that was what was really disappointing for me about Tim Kaine, was he was such he was so tenacious in going after Pence until the very end when it got on religious subjects. And that's where the best ammo is in going after Pence. And and especially on women's issues, which won't seem, you know, quote unquote, shrill coming from Tim Kaine. You know, Pence is talking about how his faith in the beauty of God's creation and the culture of life informs him every day. Well, how can you... There, Kane has an opportunity to talk about the inconsistencies that conservatism has about the culture of life, for instance. And this is something that goes very much to Tim Kane's own experience, the death penalty. Tim Kane opposed it. He defended death row inmates because he believes that all life is sacrosanct, so the death penalty shouldn't be applied. Uh, you know, why is, is Pence okay with that? Uh, why is it that he believes so much in the message message of mercy, but is so opposed to abortion that he favored mandating women who have abortions or miscarriages hold funerals for the fetus or the stillbirth. I mean, these are all things that, that are going to be pretty resonant in terms of in culture war terms. Did he legislate against that, holding funerals for fetuses that weren't brought to term? Yeah, just go ahead and, and Google funerals for fetuses, and, and that's going to be nothing but Mike Pence. I'm probably not going to Google that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do not Google image search that, please. Yeah. Good God. Um, the more I find out about Mike Pence, the less I like, but I thought he did a stunning job on the debate stage in pure terms of, of politics and political theater, and uh, it sounds like that was the viewpoint that was pretty universally shared. But again, Tim Kaine, much like Trump, didn't kind of shit his pants enough um, in his debate to really end anything. Not that a vice presidential debate can really end anything anyway. They're usually pretty inconsequential. Um, and I guess this was no exception, unfortunately. In spite of me calling out the media saying that you shouldn't watch this as a snooze fest and move on, probably that was actually quite apt. The only thing I would say um, that, just to kind of call back to something that you said earlier about the difference between seeing it on on TV and listening to it is... I got the sense from looking at some clips that Kane leaned forward a lot and was kind of interruptive and was trying to assert himself into the discussion. And when you couldn't see that, the interruptions weren't as, they didn't look, I'm, let me rephrase it. From what, I, from what I read, it felt like the media depicted Kane as desperate and a little too urgent. And while he sounded too urgent vocally at the beginning, hearing it on radio, he didn't seem desperate by any means. He he seemed to relax, and he seemed to have Pence noticeably discomfited. Hmm. I didn't notice it myself, but that, okay, well, there you go. Half a point to Tim Kaine then, but that's out of 10 points, so it's small. It's a small victory. Um, we've got the third and final presidential debate uh, coming up on the 19th of October. There's no suggestion that Trump is looking at skipping that one, right, Jeb? Because there was some suggestion that he was talking about not doing the second one but is is that cloud overhanging for this third one i i think he's going to go ahead and do it at this point his numbers are so bad he has to try to do something um and he i think the general tone coming out of this is that he's gonna that he did a lot better and he hit his points and he shored up his base and prevented any further hemorrhaging 
of Republicans from the Trump campaign. So I think he's going to, I think they're going to say, hey, listen, you did great and we can build on that. Let's just teach you a few more things and maybe we deliver a knockout blow at this next one. Uh, Somebody who is a listener was critical on Twitter and said, after that that episode where we discussed this and said that there's no way that Trump is going to back out of something hosted by Chris Wallace, who's a Fox <laughs> News. And I think there's some validity to that, but Wallace has always seemed to be like somebody who still wants to remind you of his bona fides is coming from someplace other than Fox and that yeah. he's still a reporter. Because I've seen him in, during the primary, he went in on Trump and he went in on the other Republican candidates he can he does that periodically in one-on-one interviews and you remember this guy came from somewhere else and he's not wholly in the tank yeah so i don't think his presence is inducement enough for trump but i think at this point both necessity and a little bit of confidence coming out of this there's no way he's going to miss it anyway i'm really looking forward to that chris wallace is among the pantheon of uh fox news uh presenters and contributors and personalities he's certainly at, at the top which is sort of like a backhanded compliment in a lot of ways. Um, there was something that I don't know if you want to tack on briefly, Jeb, uh, some, some chatter, some whisperings, a bit of rumor mill shiftings uh, that you've picked up on online about the funding situation between the Trump camp and the RNC. Yeah, and this is, this is what the, the, the Billy Bush video on Friday kicked off when you saw about 40 prominent Republicans withdraw their endorsement, this is what is going to be interesting to see in the next couple of days. So I guess just stay focused on it. There's something between the Trump campaign and the RNC called the Joint Fundraising Agreement. And that's basically where they say, we're going to share our money. We, we both raise things and uh, money individually, but we're going to pool that for the purposes of both the presidential election and down ballot stuff. It's going to be interesting to see whether the RNC severs that agreement. Because if they've decided there's no way that Trump can win, they're going to want to make sure that they retain the Senate for the sake of judicial appointments. And then people seem genuinely worried that the Republicans are going to lose the House, and that means no longer controlling the budget. Uh, When that happens, it's going to be really interesting to see what Trump does. His tweets have suggested that he's going to go all out against the Republican establishment and call them traitors call them cowards, uh, and accuse them of undermining him. And so you're going to have two elements of the Republican Party, the the establishment that ginned up this kind of populist, race, racialized, if not outright racist, which I let's just say racist, resentment, this xenophobia, this misogyny, that you'll have the establishment that ner- were played nursemaid to that for decades. And then you're going to have... Uh, <laughs> this sort of monster-sized screaming toddler of Donald Trump and his campaign now out of their control fighting back against them and you're going to have to see who wins. The uh the immediate downside to that obviously is that I would I my suspicion is that any internecine fighting between the two is only going to make the losses worse for the worse for the Republican party. So uh sorry you cut in a little bit in and out for me there Jeb, but are you suggesting that uh hey, I don't blame you. I blame the internet's clogged up with all them Twitters. Um, are you suggesting that he could become some sort of super version of Glenn Beck in the aftermath of this, which some people were suggesting is the reason why uh, Roger Ailes has joined the campaign, because he's going to build some sort of media empire off the back of this? That's always been a suspicion that there is going to be Trump TV 
if he loses that really his his main interest in getting into this was to see how he'd do and then he did better than he expected his backup plan was always going to be launching a separate channel and obviously ailes would be very interested in taking down fox news or at least putting such a dent in their ratings that it suggests that he was the one who made fox news not the conservative movement itself there's that vanity aspect. I don't even necessarily think it's a long game sort of thing. I think this has been a pattern for him all through his business dealings. When things don't go his way, when he doesn't make money, he blames somebody else. He threatens to sue them. Uh, you know, it, it just becomes a straw man for his inability to do something correctly. And in this case, the easiest thing to do is just take every Republican who comes out against him and condemn them. And then maybe make sure that they don't win. So people know how essential Donald Trump was to this phenomenon, not the Republican Party. And then he has, even if he loses, right, that script automatically forgives him. You know, it's not his fault that he lost. It's the Republican Party for not backing the right horse or not having better organization for him. They didn't give him, they didn't supply him with enough coaches or enough... Uh, you know, he can he'll make something up about it, but yeah. it won't be his fault. And people who support him won't think it's his fault. And there are already so many Republicans who are willing to blame the Republican establishment to begin with. That's why Donald Trump is the nominee. So there is a built-in audience who is going to maybe it's not the whole of the Republican Party that Republicans who voted for Trump, right? But there is a huge fraction of them, a huge segment of them that is already self-selected to reject the Republican establishment. So the question is, Monday morning, is the RNC going to sit down and say that debate performance was good enough? Or are they going to say, no, he his instincts and his behavior are still unpardonable. We need to share it. We need to save our money and we need to devote it toward races that we can win that help us retain control of Congress. Watch the space, huh? Yeah. If there's any silver lining to this, it's that both Roger Ailes and Donald Trump, I don't care what Dr. Oz says, they are not healthy looking men to me, and they are both very old, so maybe they will not uh, be broadcasting on this mortal plane for too much longer. And on that chipper note, from the Jewel of the Pacific, New Zealand, I will bid you a fair morning, evening, what's your schedule now, Jeb? You've got to write It's morning. Some- it's what. Right. Yeah, it's one thirty. I gotta, I gotta write an overnighter after this is done. Good God! Well, let me leave you to it. I wish you all the coffee in the world, and uh, I'll catch you soon. Maybe we'll try and get, we'll definitely get one of these out before the third um, presidential debate as well. Uh, in the meantime, button down, and I hope, I hope you're going okay in Florida, there, Jeb. Well, thank you very much. Catch you next time, folks. Bye bye. I'd like to know, Anderson, why aren't you bringing up the emails? I'd like to know. Why aren't you, you getting brought up the emails? Bottom? No, it hasn't. It hasn't. And it hasn't been finished at all. Ken Carpoitz has a question. It's nice to one on three. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you're thirsty for another, why not try Tim Talks To? Tim Talks To Interesting people inside his shed Because things like using feces to cure uh, IBS or other diseases, you know it's not legal for medical doctors in the U.S. to do that. It's not legal for them to perform the experiments, to try it on patients, even though, like, it, it, it seriously helped me.